Hello and welcome to the Convex Conversation with me, broadcaster Helen Fospero. For this week's podcast, I'm delighted to be talking to Gamal G. Turawa, a former Metropolitan Police officer whose story, The Black Cop, won a British short film at last year's BAFTAs. It's a raw, brutally honest, heartbreaking at points, multi-layered story in Gamal's own words of what he's been through in life. The film explores his early years, growing up with foster parents in Kent, part of the West African farming phenomenon, whereby white families in Britain fostered black children outside the remit of local authorities in the early 60s, 70s and 80s. And it documents his life in the Met, how he tried to fit in as one of only a handful of officers from an ethnic background and the racism he was subjected to by fellow police. I joined because... I wanted to be white. And I saw that badge as a symbol of, I'm one of you, I'm not one of them. I ignored some of the racism. I perpetrated some of it. Now retired from the force after 25 years of service and proudly out as a gay man after years of concealing his sexuality, G's story takes him all over the world in a bid to help others understand and learn from what he went through. And his work includes going into police forces to talk to officers. G, it's great to talk to you today. We've been talking about this podcast for a while and it's lovely that you're here. Thank you so much for making time for us. No, thank you, Helen. Thank you for uh, the opportunity. It's really good. We finally got here. Yeah, We did. And the opportunity Ooh. has come about thanks to our mutual friend, Black Lives Matter hero, Patrick Hutchinson. For those yeah. who don't remember, he made headlines worldwide for saving a white man's life at a rally. And he introduced us. And I'm really glad he did, G, because having watched your documentary probably six or seven times now, because there's so wow. much in it, it really is important that your story is heard. And that's what you do now, isn't it? Get that story out there. Yeah. And it's more about helping people to understand their own story. That That's the purpose of why I do it, because I always say at the beginning of my, my talks and everything like that, it's not what you listen to it's what you hear and that's different isn't it yeah, very very different because your inner voice tells you one story and that may be a completely different story to the story i'm telling you it's about getting people to think about how are you hearing this and what's it going to do for you how is it going to change how you see yourself and it took you many years didn't it to see yourself for who you truly are so hopefully you can speed up that process for people that are lucky enough yeah. to hear you speak very much so very much so before we dig Mostly. deep and find out a lot more about the content of the film and what emerged in that very powerful half hour how did it come about in the first place the director cherish was at an LGBT workshop for people from minority communities. And the person who was running the workshop, a friend of mine, Emma, was talking about me as her role model. And Cherish went up and said, I'd like to meet him. So arrangements were made for Cherish and I to meet up. And we met up in um, Nando's, one of my favorite places. (laughs) (laughs) My sons too. And we talked for about four or five hours. And at the end of it, they said to me, I want to make a film about you. And I was like, okay. I must admit, it took about five years for us to get the film made because initially nobody was interested. Nobody was interested in the story. Nobody wanted to pick it up. And then George Floyd happened. And suddenly after George Floyd, 
everybody wanted part of the story. And Cherish went with The Guardian and a wonderful woman called Emma Cooper as producer. And they started off by interviewing me. I mean, they did cut out a huge chunk of the story because I lived in Nigeria for eight years as well, where I was homeless on the streets of Lagos for about a year. So, you know, that part of the story wasn't included for some reason. Gosh, that's interesting. What period mm. of your life was that, G? How old were you roughly then? Just so I can piece that together. That was from when I was 16 till I was 24. My dad told me I was going out there for a holiday. And I got there and after about five weeks, I said to my uncle, when am I going back? And my uncle laughed and said, you're not going back. You're staying here. Your father doesn't want you back. And I was suddenly, oh, I've been tricked. And then I was taken to a village in the middle of nowhere, which was, you know, it was a good almost 10 hour drive. And they wanted to take me to a place where I couldn't escape from. And I was in that village initially for about, Almost a year. Then I managed. I did manage to get some money together, got back to Lagos, and then realized I didn't know where I was going. And I saw some people sleeping under a bridge. So I thought, I'll go and join them for the night, and then tomorrow I'll figure out something else. That became my home for almost a year. Gosh. Within a short space of time, I'd sold all my belongings. Everything had gone. I was one of those kids that was out begging on the streets and going into pubs and restaurants and begging for money it's the point in my life where you give up hope you think nobody knows where i am nobody knows what's happening nobody can find me so this is probably where i'm gonna die and under that bridge i saw fights break out i saw people stabbed i saw people raped i woke up next to dead bodies i fought off rats during the night when i was trying to sleep and then one day i went into a beer parlor and i was doing my routine and one of my uncles happened to be there and he saw me and took me in. And that started the next chapter. <laughs> For that to be missed out just mm. shows me how powerful the rest of that half hour short film had to be because I had no idea that you went through that. And I'm just going back to the actual film itself, and then we'll piece this together for people listening. Yeah. I think I've got the advantage of knowing your story, so I'm piecing it together in my <laughs> mind. But just going back to the actual film and the fact it took five yeah. years to get off the ground and make, what was it like when it was then awarded the BAFTA for Best Short Film? Oh, gosh. Well, you want to make me cry, don't you, Helen? <laughs> That's not the plan. <laughs> It still feels very surreal. I know it's been a year, but it still feels very, very surreal. I remember sort of like, you know, a few weeks before, I got a phone call from Cherish and they said, we've been long listed for a BAFTA. And I was like, oh, okay, that's nice. Whoa. <laughs> and then a few weeks later, it was like, we've been short listed. And I'm like, oh, okay. Okay. That's interesting. And then the next phone call I got was about, couple of weeks before the BAFTAs and I was sitting in a car park in the supermarket and I get a phone call and I answer the phone, we've been nominated. And I just burst into tears in the car. I just sat in the car and I just burst into tears. It was like, I couldn't believe this was happening. I just, <laughs> you know, it was, I don't know how to explain it. It was just surreal, very surreal. And then on the night, just being there was you know, you're in this place where you've seen on TV countless times. And, you know, you sort of think, this is not somewhere I ever expected myself to be. And the biggest thing I think it did, it, it took my expectations of life 
from that to that. It said to me, anything is possible. Uh, and there was a part of me that's thinking, so, okay, if I've got this, why can't I get an Oscar? Which was so bizarre because a couple <laughs> like of weeks way, afterwards. I like the way yeah, you're thinking. Yeah, a couple of weeks afterwards, the Oscars were on and I was sitting watching the Oscars on TV. And I was thinking, a couple of weeks ago, I was in the same room as all those people, but in London. And I'm like, this is possible. Things can change. This can happen. Yeah. It still feels very, very surreal. Very surreal. When I was watching this year's BAFTAs just the other day, I thought about your story and having watched the film lots of times, everything you'd been through on your journey. And then there you are, an event like that, that in the entertainment world or documentary world is the absolute pinnacle, isn't it? It's right up there, the BAFTAs, alongside the Oscars. And I just felt some kind of inner joy, G, that everything I'd listened to you tell in your own words in the film had been acknowledged and that you'd got the story out to a very, very wide audience because I hope that people who saw those awards worldwide will find Half an Hour mm. and go and watch your film online. How do you sum it up when you're telling people who haven't seen it? In a nutshell, what's your pricey of the black cop yeah. and then we'll go back to childhood and unravel the story if we may. That's exactly it. You just said it there in that statement. It's about how we unravel our own stories. And that's what it's about for me. It's about finding yourself and looking at your life without blame or shame. There's a guy called Viktor Frankl who wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. I mean, he was a Holocaust survivor. And I remember reading his book and there was something he said at the end of the book. And he said, we always look for the meaning of life, but there isn't a meaning of life. There's the meaning we give our life. And for me, that's what it's about. The meaning I give my life is that we can grow. We can unravel. We don't have to be held down by our past and by our stories. We can be empowered by them. So let's go back to the beginning and some of your earliest memories of your childhood, being mm. cared for by a white family in Kent when you were a little boy. What was that like, G? What are the memories that really stick out from that particular time? I was with my foster parents from when I was a couple of weeks old. So growing up with them, they were my parents for all intents and purposes. I never felt any different. But I always felt there was something blocking my sense of belonging. Because all the books and all the programs and everything I read were all white. One of the things my foster mother used to say to me was, stop giving away your sweets and your pocket money. And even as a kid, I was trying to buy myself into this world that I didn't see myself. But there were reminders letting me know that I wasn't part of that world. And my foster mother would say things like, you know, if it wasn't for us, you know, you'd be running around with a bone through your nose. I remember at school playing Cowboys and Indians. And I went to a teacher one day because every time we played, guess who the Indian always was? And I remember going to a teacher and I said, I want to be a cowboy. And the teacher looked at me and said, oh, bless, you're the wrong color. <sighs> there was all these little subtle messages that were telling me, this is your space. Stay in your lane, so to speak. Watching things like the Flintstones or the Jetsons and the cartoons, you know, there were never any black people in any of those cartoons. You never saw yourself represented. And it was just like there was this whole other world that you weren't part of. And even as a young kid, I was very aware of that. And I thought, if I try as much as I can to be like them, then I'll fit in. 
And this was all part of something that was known as farming, which I think is a, yeah. a horrible phrase for it, actually. It was quite common, wasn't it, in the early 60s mm. to early 80s, that mm. a lot of West African children were looked after by white families. Why did that happen, G, in those days? What was the thinking behind that? I think you have to go back to, there's an African phrase or an African saying that says it takes a village to raise a child. And if you've lived in Africa, in any world, especially in Nigeria, you will know that families live in what they call compounds. And this compound is all the relatives live there. So everybody, all the adults in that compound take responsibility for the children. And normally the older generation would look after the children. And you could have dinner in one house, breakfast in another house and sleep in another house, all within this compound. And when they came here, they didn't have that network. So the private fostering arrangement kind of filled a gap, for want of a better phrase. Because the idea was, you know, in Nigeria, you'd be sent to stay with uncle so-and-so while your parents got their degrees and got, their, got themselves settled. So when they came here, that was what happened. You know, I was sent out and with thousands. I mean, my story is just one of so many stories. And when you hear some of the stories of other people, my story is pretty tame compared to some people. That, I mean, I run a group for people who were fostered. And some of the stories are even gut-wrenching for me. Gosh, that's extraordinary. And there you were as a little boy and seemingly relatively mm. happy, I think, in those early years. As you say, you treated your foster yeah. parents as your parents because you'd been there since you were a baby. But then there was mm. a period when you were about seven that a black man arrived at the house, didn't he, and sat on the sofa and you talk about remembering being terrified. Tell me about what happened then. Yeah, I came home from school. And I walked in and there was this huge, it was huge to me. Obviously I was a kid, but he seemed like a giant and he was black. And it was the first time I had physically seen a black person who wasn't on the TV. And I was just looking at him and my suitcase. And I remember it, it was, it was a cardboard black and white suitcase and it was sitting next to him. And my foster mother gave me a hug and said, Oh, this is your father. He's going to take you to London for a couple of weeks. And I'm looking at her and looking at him and thinking, but you're my mommy and daddy. I don't know who this man is. Why are you sending me with this man? And I remember we got on the train at Canterbury and all the way from Canterbury to London, my father didn't say a word. Yeah. And we arrived at Victoria and I got off the train and it was just chaos. I was scared. You know, I'm a village boy in this little village, Kent village. Suddenly I'm in the middle of this hoo-ha and this noise and everything. And I wet myself. And my dad's response was to start slapping me on the platform right and then he says you wait till your mom sees you and i'm thinking yes when i tell her that you slapped me she's not going to be happy but then he started dragging me in the wrong direction and we got to this house in london in north london northwest london the door opened this woman grabs me and said there's mommy's little boy and i'm thinking i don't know what's going on here and that night i was put into bed with two girls and told you're sleeping with your sisters and i'm sort of like I didn't sleep at all that night. I used to have a teddy bear. And one morning I got up and I just decided, as a kid does, I've had enough of this. I'm going back home. So I got up with my pajamas, with my teddy bear, walked out the house and decided I was going to walk back to my foster parents. And a woman found me, took me to the police station. I was brought back home. And my parents then put a double lock on the front door to stop me escaping again. And my mom took my teddy bear and threw it in the bin. My teddy bear then was my only friend. And then I found out I wasn't going back. And I suddenly gone from an all white 
existence to suddenly into an all-black existence. It must have been really, really frightening as a young boy. I have two children and my heart breaks when I hear dad slapping you or throwing your teddy bear away and the fear that as a young boy you must have felt. But life was very different in London. And one of the things that was very different for you in that surrounding is the way your family talked about the police. And that's something you noticed, isn't it, as a young child? Yeah. Yeah. Among many other things, yes. There were talks about a thing called racism. And I didn't understand what they were talking about because in the village where I grew up in Kent, we knew the local Bobby. We knew where he lived. We knew his house. And if you got into trouble, he knew your names and he knew everybody in the village. And he was friendly. You could go and talk to him. PC Brian. I didn't have that understanding of what that was all about until one day... I was walking to school and I was with a little Irish lad called Eugene. I say little, we were both little <laughs> then. And we're walking along the road and there was a police officer walking up ahead of us. And Eugene goes running up to him and says, hello, Mr. Policeman. And his officer said something to him and then turns around, puts his hand in his pocket and gives him a coin. So I'm thinking, oh, the police are giving away money. So I went running up to get my share. Yeah, so that's what the police did. And I went up and I said, hello, Mr. Policeman. And forgive my language, but he turned round and said, fuck off, you black bastard. And I remember how those words hit me. It was the moment I realized I was black. You know, I'd known I was black, but that's the moment I realized. And every conversation that took place in the living room suddenly made sense. Because of that one incident, it just made sense. And that just changed everything. I was already angry and to a certain extent traumatized. I was a rebellious kid in school. And when I look back on it, I just, I was in a situation I didn't understand. Nothing made sense. So that just added another level to that confusion. And my dad's response to that was to beat me severely. He used to beat me with rubber hoses, with leather shoes, with bits of wood, uh, tie me up. He would say things like, for the next 30 days, you're not eating any food in this house. And social services became almost like part of the family. And I spent a lot of time in children's homes and hospitals and back home again and then back to children's homes and hospitals. And that was the cycle of my life from about 10 till I was about 16. And is it around that period, G, when you got to 16, 17, that you saw your first black police officer and decided in your head, that is what I'm going to do with my life? That was when I was about 14. And we were going to the mosque during Ramadan. I mean, again, so (laughs) my foster parents, I went to church. Sunday school, everything. Suddenly I'm doing this whole other religion, which I didn't understand. So literally, like I said, everything had changed. And I'm, I'm this kid. I, I don't know what world I belong in. I remember this day we were walking to the mosque in Regent's Park and we got to this junction. And in the middle of the junction, in amongst all these people crossing the road, I suddenly saw this black police officer directing traffic. And I remember stopping and staring at him And it just felt like electricity going through me. I can still feel the energy. And I think, you know, if I look back on it now, what it was, it was the first time I had seen a black person in a position of power. And it blew me away, totally blew me away. 
my dad was standing next to me and I turned to my dad and I said to him, that's what I want to do. And my dad just turned around and slapped me and said, if you join them, they'll kill you. But I think the seed was planted. That officer was a guy called Norwell Roberts, who was the first black officer in the Met, who is now a very good friend of mine. He's retired. He's coming up to his 80s. But I see him every couple of months. We have a breakfast together. And, you know, and I just look at him and say, you know, he inspired me. I bet he's got some incredible stories to share as well. How lovely that you still have breakfast with him and that he inspired you all those years ago. And you were relentless in your applications. I think you applied five times and eventually got to police training college. And not many of the officers were from a minority background. I think you described about 90 white officers and four perhaps mixed race young officers. Mm. So was there a massive feeling for you, a bit like going back to being six and seven in Kent, that you had to somehow try and fit this world that was a bit alien to you? What had happened, because before joining the police, I'd been in Nigeria, I'd had all these things happen. And what I didn't know or didn't realize is that I hated being black. And my reason for joining was I wanted to have that warrant card to say, I'm not one of them, I'm one of you. And I thought, I grew up around white people. I grew up with my foster parents. I'm going to fit right in here. And that wasn't the case. When I joined Hendon, yes, there were some good people there, but there was also the microaggressions that constantly let me know that I was black. A drill instructor who would look at me and say, smile, smile. We can't see you unless you smile. He's always making these little jokes. People would say things to me. You don't even have to sit the exams. They want people like you. So you can't fail. They wouldn't let you fail. And it was almost like I was put into this box. And I remember going to see an instructor, one of the instructors, and sat down and said, look, this is what's happening. And this is how it's making me feel. And I spoke to him for about 45 minutes. I literally just poured my heart out. And then he said, you know what your problem is, son? You've got a chip on your shoulder. And I remember thinking, you haven't understood a word I've said. You're even part of putting me into that box. And I was thinking, how do I fit in here? How do I show people that I want to fit in? And then an opportunity presented itself. And I was in my room studying one evening. And there's a knock at the door. And I open the door. And these guys come in. And they're all laughing and joking. We're all laughing and joking together. And then one of them says, you're actually the wrong color to be in this job, you know. And there was some shoe whitener on the shelf. And they said, but, you know, we can help you out. And they took the shoe whitener. And they painted me white. And the thing is, I let them. I was as much part of that scenario as they were. Because I thought, if I do this, I'll fit in and they'll see that I'm safe and I'm okay. And then we took a picture together. You know, it's one of those things that if I told that story without that picture, people wouldn't believe that it happened. And you describe it. Well, you you talk about in the film about how you laughed with them and you describe it as your breakthrough moment. What did you mean by your breakthrough moment, G? They can see that I'm safe. I'm not going to be a troublemaker. And in fact, you went to extraordinary lengths to fit in. You told what would be perceived as racist jokes, I think. There was one about a Kit Kat, wasn't there? I think that springs to mind that you told. And also, you say that you perpetrated some of it. You did more stop and searches than any other police officer. And that was all in a bid to try and fit in, wasn't it? 
Oh God, yes. The pressure to fit, especially, you know, you're talking the early 90s when I joined. This was pre to Stephen Lawrence and all of that stuff. So the pressure to fit in was phenomenal. You felt like you were constantly being tested to make sure you weren't one of them, so to speak. And I was doing everything I could to show that I wasn't one of them. And I think part of it, going back to my childhood, I had this desperate need to belong. I wanted to feel like I belonged somewhere. I'd never, at that point, I'd never belonged anywhere. I was out of sync with my foster parents. I was out of sync with my natural parents. I was out of sync in Nigeria. So joining the police was like, I need to belong somewhere. And I would give up anything to find that belonging. Well, in fact, you gave up, in a way, your sexuality because you felt you needed to hide the fact that you're gay. You carried around a photograph, didn't you, of a woman who you said was your ex-wife. It's terrible, really, G, listening to what it took away from you. And it's joyous to know that the life you lead now, you are who you are, and you've found that sense of belonging at last. Because most of us, or in my family, for example, have that sense of belonging. And it makes me feel very lucky that I've got that Mm. when I hear your stories. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, yeah, a sense of belonging. It's fundamental, isn't it, to, to a happy life, a sense of belonging? Oh, hugely, hugely. We need to belong somewhere. It's, it's part of our DNA. There was a period as well, wasn't there, when the force started using you for promotional campaigns and did there feel a part of that aspect that was enjoyable, that you were held up as a, an example of somebody good to have in the force? Were there some good times through that period? If you link it into the belonging piece, I was getting all this attention. And for me, it was like, they like me. Oh, look at me. I'm on all these magazines. I'm in all these papers. I'm, I'm the poster boy. And it was like, I'm liked. I'm safe. They now finally see that I'm okay. I'm not a troublemaker. And also, like I said, if you want to belong, if you have that need to belong, that feeds that need. It becomes like a drug. Although I was used, I was a willing participant. That's the essence of what my story is, is what do we give up to belong? And do we understand that we're giving up things to belong? The racially motivated murder in 1993 of Stephen Lawrence, the black teenager, which I recall really well from the time, but also 20 years after Stephen's death, I did an exclusive with his father when Mm. finally, after two decades, two of the original suspects were jailed for killing him. I think that triggered probably the biggest investigation into racial attitudes in a couple of decades. Do you have memories of that time and were you in the force then? And did you feel that maybe there was a change and a positive welcome shift coming? Mm. Hmm. (laughs) Um, I was young in my career, so it happened in 93. I joined in 92. What I remember is that there was a lot of anger a lot of anger. And, and one of the things which was repeated during the George Floyd scenario was that, you know, you're a black officer in the canteen and it's almost like everyone turns around to look at you and says, so are we racist? And you've got this like massive, everyone looking at you, daring you to say yes. Right? And you know that if you say yes, you're suddenly going to be ostracized. Right? So you can't say what you're feeling because, you know, these are people that you may have to rely on them to save your life. And the last thing you want to do is upset them. 
you don't say what you're feeling. You say what they want to hear or you say nothing. But that pressure again, you know, sort of like daring you. So, and there was a lot of anger, especially with the term institutional racism. Very few people understood what it meant. And I remember our briefing, because everyone was supposed to be given a briefing about institutional racism. And our briefing was the sergeant walked in and said, right, this report says we're all racist. We're not doing it again. Okay, right. I've told you. Now let's get on with work. And that was the introduction to institutional racism. The good things that came out of it were, for example, the positive action team, which was the first one in the country, which I joined. And initially, that was the place where I started to understand or see myself in a positive light. And I think that was the first time because we worked with an amazing group of people and discussing some of these issues. Well, there is another way of looking at this. And it started to make me feel a bit more comfortable with myself. And then the management of that team changed. And I would say because it was such a very politically sensitive area and it was also high profile, it attracted people who wanted to get some, I don't know, extra kudos for their CVs. And they were not the right people to be in that department. And it went from being a very empowering, inspiring department to becoming very oppressive. And also at this time, I was still... I mean, I'd been suppressing my sexual orientation right from when I was a kid. I knew I was, say, different from when I was about 10 years old. So I had that sense. But I remember as a kid, we were watching Larry Grayson on The Generation Game. And we were sitting there watching it and the lights were off and my mom and my sisters were there. And I don't know why my sister said this, but she said to my mom, what would you do if you thought Gamal was gay? And I was so glad that the lights were off because I started shaking. And then my mum said, I'd shove a red hot poker right up his ass. Oh, crumbs. And I just thought, I can't tell anybody this. And then at that time, the only gay people you saw or I saw were your Larry Graysons, your John Inman, your Danny LaRue. And they were all camp and they were all effeminate. And I'm sort of, well, I don't look like them. So there must be something wrong with me. Maybe I'm not meant to be gay. Maybe there's a mistake here. Maybe I'll get over this at some point. I just need to find the right woman. And that's when I started to create this world around me. And even when I joined the police, you know, carrying a wallet around and I had an ex-partner, I called her the bitch, who lived in America with my kids and had gone to America. And I played this bitter, angry person who was rejected and jilted or whatever. But also the other thing was because of the Theo P. Wilderbeast type persona, that Lenny Henry did on TV. It was very easy for people to think that I had leopard skid thongs and mirrors on my ceiling and stuff like that. A lot of people felt I lived in a harem. And eventually it turned into a toxic environment at work, didn't it? And it yeah. all did come crashing down for you. And I felt a real sense in the documentary that there came a point where you really lost who you were and had to try and recover from that. I wouldn't say I lost who I was. I realized I didn't know who I was. And the catalyst for that was I was working in the office and I went into the photocopy room and I was putting photocopy paper into the photocopier. And we had a gay inspector on the team. And as I was bent down, he came walking in and said, oh, I love a black ass. And he grabbed me from behind and started to dry hump me. I just stood up and I was like, what the... And he walked out laughing. I was fuming and I reported it. 
And on the Friday afternoon, I was summoned to the chief inspector who was going to be the investigator. And I walked into his office. And I'll never forget, because his office backed onto the River Thames. And he said to me, at the end of the day, G, he's an inspector, you're a PC. Do you really think this is going to go anywhere? And I thought, that's your starting point? And I just got up and I walked out. I went home. And I remember that weekend, I just walked around in circles in the living room. You suddenly realize, oh my God, what have I done with my life? What have I created? And all the lies and everything just thought like, just started crumbling in on me. And I just didn't know where to go. And it got to Sunday night. And I decided, right, I know what I'm going to do. And I wrote a suicide note, left it on the coffee table, and went to the local train station with the intention of jumping in front of the fast train. I don't know why I didn't, but something stopped me. But I did end up in the office. And one of the women I was working with, she came in, she saw me, and she goes, what are you doing here so early? And I just burst into tears. And basically, I had a breakdown. And that was the point where I suddenly realized I don't know who I am. I don't know who I am. And I remember going to see a counselor, and he asked me two questions. And the first question he asked me was, uh, who defines you? And I was looking at him like, I have no idea what you mean. I never knew that I could define myself. I thought I had to be what people expected me to be. And the problem is everybody has a different expectation of who they think you should be. You can never be one thing. You're always trying to fulfill other people's expectations. So that keeps you off balance. So that question was like totally alien until I worked it through. And then it was like, oh. And then I thought, I need to figure out who I am. And then the second question he asked me was, um, why did you allow people to intimidate you? And I hated that question because I wanted to be in a place of, it's not about me, it's everybody else. If you all understood me, I wouldn't have an issue. It's about you lot. But then he kept pressuring me with that question. And what that question did, it was giving me responsibility for how I saw the world. And I was rejecting it because I didn't want to be in a place of, I wanted to be a victim. And I saw myself in the mirror and I didn't realize I wanted to be a victim. I just wanted someone else to take the blame for this feeling that I had. And he was saying, you need to own this before you can change it. You can't change what you don't acknowledge. And he worked me through it and I love him dearly. He's still a good friend till today. But he helped me work through that process and work through the anger. And then it was like, oh, okay. And I call it learning to own my own space learning to own my voice, learning to own my color, learning to own my sexual orientation and get to a place that these are actually mine and they're going to be with me to the day I die. So I need to figure out how to embrace them, how to love them, how to celebrate them. Because if I don't do that, nobody else is going to do it for me. And that became almost like my mission from that point on. I remember the last meeting I had with him, he said, look, I don't think you should come back to the police. I think you should find something else to do. I remember sitting there. It was almost like, I don't know if you've seen the film Good Will Hunting. I have. I love that film. There's the park scene, right, where he's sitting on the park with Robin Williams. That was my scene with my counsellor. So every time I see that, I remember <laughs> that. And it was a park in uh, London. And he says, look, I know this is what I think. This is what you should do. But I know it's up to you. Let me know how you get on. I sat there for a good few hours thinking, and then I came to the conclusion, I love being a cop. I love the profession of policing. 
There are people within it I don't like, but as a profession, it's the noble one. I'm proud that I wore that uniform. I have no shame about it. I did some amazing things. I was part of some amazing things. I changed people's lives and perceptions. It was a powerful, powerful role. And even when I talk to new recruits, I say the beauty of the role is you get to see people at their most real, at their most vulnerable. You get to see behind people's masks. And that was something I was just so enamored by, something I just valued. I've got a friend who's a psychologist and I was talking to her about that. And she goes, you were abused as a child, weren't you? And I said, how do you know that? I've never told you that. How do you know that? And she goes, that's one of the traits of children. They don't like things to be hidden. They like to see things real and everything because they know that in the darkness, there's a lot of fear for them. And I was like, wow. Okay. Yeah. I'll own that. (laughs) (laughs) And now that you do own yourself and this extraordinary person that I know you are just from a very short time of getting to know you. How is life now, G? Hmm. I hope you don't mind me using this phrase, but I say we all have a bag of shit, right? Everybody has a bag of shit. I've learned to own my bag of shit. And it's not that I haven't got issues. I haven't got insecurities. I haven't got fears or problems. It's just that I know I have, and I celebrate them. I embrace them. I don't see them as burdens. I see them as part of what makes me me. And that's part of what I hope the film is about, is that you need to own your shit, basically. And I like the fact that when you do your talks, you go into police forces as well as other places to speak to officers. What kind of reaction do you get? And why is that aspect of your work important to you? Reactions I get is very, very positive, very positive. Even especially after the film came out, I've had more and more forces calling me up and down the country. And I go in and I think because I'm in a place where I don't tell my story with bitterness or anger, I'm not going in to say, look, I'm here to beat you up. I'm there to say, I'm here to help you understand what is happening. Because for me, it was my color and my gender. For somebody else, it could be their education. It could be their gender. But we need to understand that everyone has a story. And I did a lot of good time in the police. I want to give something back. I don't want to be one of those people that sits on the sidelines complaining. I want to be part of what makes things better. And I think to do that, we have to be honest about our stories. It's not about policies. It's not about legislation. It's not about making rules. It's about understanding that we're human. And to do that, I try and be the most vulnerable, the most honest and the most open human that I can. That's such an inspiring story. I think it's important to say that at the end of the film, the Met gave a written statement saying it's not the same force as it was 20, 25 years ago and pointing out that they now provide diversity training for officers and staff, etc. One would hope it's a better place now. And it sounds like you're getting great reaction from the forces that you speak to. So are you optimistic that things have changed for the better? Well, that's a, that's a very loaded question. <laughs> oh, I didn't mean it to and be I say loaded. loaded. No, 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 no. I don't mean that you loaded it. I mean, the answer's loaded because my film came out on the Monday. And on the Friday, the story broke about the racism and homophobia that was happening in Charing Cross Police Station. And you sit there and you think, they're saying it doesn't happen. It's all put in the past. And look at what's just happened. Look at the misogyny stuff that's come up. Look at all this stuff that's come up. You sit there and you think, no, you need to work on this. We need to be honest. And I think the police are doing their best, 
but they haven't really recognized how deep the rabbit hole is. And they need people like myself who have been down that rabbit hole and know what it's like. And they should be embracing people like myself to come back and you know, say, look, we can help you get through this. We're not the enemies, we're friends. I found it humbling listening to your story. And I will be always grateful to our friend Patrick for drawing my attention to the documentary, which I hadn't seen before he told me about it. And thank you so much, G, for guesting and keep getting your message out there. Can I ask you a question? Yes, you can. Go on. What did the film do for you? It stirred up just a mix of emotions. I felt ashamed of the stuff that you were going through, the whole sense of belonging. I'm really lucky. I come from a very humble background and I lost my dad last year at nearly 88. What I was rich in was I was rich in love and belonging. And it really made me realize how lucky I was. It did all sorts of things. And that's why I watched it six or seven times. I feel there'll be something different in it every time I watch it hugely powerful and brave as well in a way I mean you put yourself out there and that's extraordinary you go out to places now and you live through it all again in a very positive fashion plus you strike me as really positive you don't strike me as a oh poor me all this awful stuff happened I don't know loads of feelings loads of feelings I get this all the time to me that's the joy of the film is that it makes people examine their own story and you've just done that. That's the beauty. That's the joy. That's what I get back. That's why I do it. What you just did there is why I do it. Thank you so much, G, for guesting and keep getting your message out there. Your story is so important. I know you say it's one of lots of different stories that are out there, but you are having a big impact by being honest and open and allowing people like us and the audiences to the film and the people you go and speak to, to listen. So Please promise me you'll keep doing that. I'll keep that promise. Thank you, Ellen. You've been listening to Gamal G. Tuawa, whose story was the subject of the BAFTA-winning short film, The Black Cop. You can find the film by just Googling it. It's about half an hour and a really powerful watch. I do highly recommend it. Don't forget to download and subscribe to our series at convex.podbean.com or search The Convex Conversation on Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts, Stitcher or wherever you listen to yours. Join me next week when I'll bring you another inspiring guest. Bye for now. Thank you.